Well, good morning. It's an honor to be with you here today. Our gathering, our gathering this morning, uh, I was really thinking about this, and I believe that when we make the decision to gather on a, on a weekly basis, we're making one of the most important decisions of our week. Um, it has such an impact on the group. In fact, it's important that you know, and you'll hear me say this over and over and over again probably until the Lord calls me home, your choice to gather today, it impacts me. Your choice to gather today impacts your neighbor to your left and to your right. It blesses me. It blesses them. And it does the same for others. Your voices in worship impact those that are around you. Because there have been seasons in my life where my spirit is so down, I can't sing. But hearing my brothers and sisters sing on my behalf is a blessing. And so never forget the importance of the gathering body of Christ. Uh, it's something that we should never, never overlook. If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, uh, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking today at verses 11 through 22. Ephesians, 22, or Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. And it should make you feel pretty good. It's, we spent like six weeks in chapter 1, and we've gotten through chapter 2 in almost 3. So that's, that's pretty good. Um, so if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the chair in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, consider that a gift from us to you. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were, you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were, want, who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 17. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the prophets, apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let me pray for us. Holy Father, we praise you today uh, 
for the gift of your word. Lord, we know according to this text that um, through the revelation of your word to the prophets and to the apostles, Lord, that your word is part of the foundation of what we know as the church. And so today we as one body proclaim, Lord, that your word is without error. That your word is the truth that you have called us to set our lives towards. Like your word, Lord, is how we are sanctified. And so, Lord, we praise you for your spirit today. We praise you for um, the gift of, of the helper that walks beside us, Lord, and, and guides us and convicts us and, and sanctifies us, Lord. Lord, I pray today, Lord, that you would remove and make people forget any opinion that I may give and that your word would stand and stand eternally. We love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I once heard a message by R.C. Sproul in which he said, The essence of Christian theology is grace, and the essence of Christian ethics is gratitude. The essence of Christian theology is grace, and the essence of Christian ethics is gratitude. That statement has stayed with me over the years, and I've come back to it time and time again. We are not supposed to be motivated to godliness by fear. Fear of consequence, of breaking the law. Rather, we ought to be motivated by gratitude. In response to the gospel, in response to the love that Christ has done, we love. Because we are loved. In response to the work of Christ, we serve because we have been served. In response, we work because of the work on the cross. Remember Jesus' words in regards to the woman who washed his feet with oil in Luke chapter 7. He says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. In the Old Testament, the root concept of the word apostasy was the idea of forgetting, right? As long as God's redemption plan was clear and fresh in the people, the people of God were excited, right? They were excited to worship. They were excited to be obedient. They were zealous for the Lord, but as the memory of God's blessings faded, their zeal faded as well. This is a repeated theme in the Old Testament. And if we're being honest and true reflection of our own lives, this is a theme of our life as well. We easily forget. It is the link between memory and the motivating power of gratitude that produces in us the fruits of righteousness. Paul is reminding these Gentile believers today in the text that they are not to take for granted what God has done for them, but more importantly, what he's done in them. This reminder is, is for us today as well. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, 
Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were once, that you were at one at, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant, having no hope and without God in the world. He says, remember this idea of circumcision is a reference uh, to the Old Testament ritual that involved cutting the foreskin of the flesh from the male Jewish man. It was a theological sign. It was a sacred rite that was undertaken to seal the covenant of God with his people. There is a sense that the circumcised were those who were cut off from the world. Those who were circumcised were set apart. Those who were circumcised were consecrated to the special relationship of being in the family of God. Those who were outside of the covenant of grace that God made to Abraham, as we read a little while ago, were referred to in the scriptures as the uncircumcised. It became a title. This distinction is really, really important here in the context of this passage. It's important that we understand um, the favor that God showed those who, who carried the name, the people of God, because of the circumcision. It reminded me as I was studying 1 Samuel 17. I remember how David was outraged and horrified that his people would do absolutely nothing in the face of the mockery of Goliath. They just cowered in front of Goliath. But David understood the favor and the blessings of God. In 1 Samuel 17, verse 36, he says, Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. And this is important, for he has defied the armies of the living God. <coughs> what outraged David was that the challenge to the soldiers of Israel was coming from one who was uncircumcised, one who was outside of the camp, someone who was outside the sphere of God's redemptive favor. In this moment, as they stood in front of this giant of a man, they had forgotten the promise. They had forgotten the promise of God. What is important here is this. The mark of the Gentile Christian is not the circumcision, but the uncircumcision. Look at verse 12 there. He says, remember that you were at one that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. They were separated from Christ, and therefore they had no hope 
and we're without God in the world. And so it's an important distinction to have a good biblical understanding of the word circumcision and the uncircumcised in regards to the promises and the blessings of God, just as we read this morning in the, in the Abrahamic covenant. But the beautiful word that Paul uses over and over, the word but, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Here Paul unveils the mystery. The inclusion of the Gentiles in the covenant of grace in the New Testament community his church. Despite the past status of the Gentiles, Christ has made the perfect sacrifice entering the heavenly place and now allows those of us who were strangers to the covenant, we were aliens, we were foreigners to the covenant of grace. Because of the work of Christ, we can now fully participate in his kingdom this should bring you to praise every moment that you have breath. In verse 13 there, Paul uses a bit of a spatial image to describe the difference here. In the past, we were far off, but now we have been brought near. And the means by which we have been brought near is the blood of Christ Jesus. In Christ alone are we saved. Once again, Miss Sharon picks songs through the power of the Holy Spirit that perfectly aligns with our teaching today. Praise be to God for that. The sacrifice that breaks down the wall of partition has been poured out, has been destroyed. In the book of Romans, Paul in the book of Romans, Paul concludes. That the result of our justification, as we talked about last week, that we are fully justified. The moment that we place our faith in Christ, the moment we are regenerated, we are no longer held liable for the wrath we deserve. We are fully justified. And the result of our justification is that we have peace with God. Say that, peace with God. Those are very powerful words. But there's more to our, to our justification, right? There's more than us just being set free from the bondage. There's more than us being set free and the, and the slate being wiped clean. We also have access to his presence. In Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. In our justification, we are granted peace with God, but we are also granted access into his presence. Paul here is now expanding on this idea in verses 14 through 18, saying that the peace won by Christ in his atonement is not simply the peace that we have with God, but also the peace that we have with each other. 
Let me say that again. I want you to hear it really clear. The peace won by Christ in the atonement is not simply the peace we have with God, but also the peace that we have with one another. In particular, that peace that ends the estrangement in the context of this letter between Jew and Gentile. But also the peace that ends the estrangement from everyone in our world today. And this peace in that justification is why you can look to your left and look to your right at brothers and sisters in Christ and truly know that they are, in fact, that. They are your brothers. They are your sisters. And that is the beauty of the work of Christ. Verse 14, the Apostle Paul writes, For he himself, for he himself is our peace, who, is, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. The wall that separates us both, Jew and Gentile, has been broken down. And Christ has made one people in his body, which we know today as the church. That's the mystery that Paul is celebrating here, that God in Christ has won peace for both Jew and Gentile. This peace with each other is also that peace that we have with God. They are one in the same. Paul has in view here the temple of Israel, and it's really important. In fact, I had earlier this week, I had this really, I had a picture of the temple that I thought would give us a good illustration, but it just wouldn't zoom in far enough, and it was super pixelated, so I didn't have it. So what I want you to see here is Paul has in view here in his illustration the temple of Israel. In the temple, there were areas that had specific functions and access points, right? So the heart of the temple was the most holy place, or as some call it, the holy of holies, where the throne of God was established and where the atonement was made on the day of atonement every year. In the temple there, in the holy of holies, in the most holy place, only one human being was ever allowed or dared to enter the most holy place, and it was the high priest and he did so only once a year after a rigorous cleaning, right? He would, he would spend his time. It's even said in, like, in church history that there were times and seasons when the high priest would go in there that they would tie a rope around his ankle in case he dropped dead. So someone else, they would just drag him out. Like this was the most holy place. It was where the presence of God dwelled. Outside of the most holy place, what was considered the holy place, which was where the priests and the Levites could enter. But ordinary believers could only enter into the courts. They come that far, but they could go no further. It's important to clarify that the dividing wall of hostility here does not refer to the curtain that separated the most holy place from the holy place. While it is very true that the moment of the atonement by Christ on the cross, the curtain or the veil, 
that forbade, that forbade our access to the presence of God was removed. In fact, it says that it tore from the top to the bottom. Paul, however, here is referring to another barrier. He's referring to the barrier that separated Jew and Gentiles, the bloodline. The Gentiles could come into the outer court, but they could come no further. For the wall of partition or the dividing wall separated Gentiles from those who were full members of the covenant. Can you, can you visually understand the significance of this? Like if you're living in that day and there's this huge majestic temple and you as a Gentile stand on the outside, never taking part in the blessings of the covenant. Verse 15, though, by abolishing the law, the commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. What a beautiful word peace is. An important note here, this does not mean that, that Jesus Christ has destroyed the law of the commandments. Rather, he performed in himself all the requirements that had to be fulfilled for us to be reconciled to God. The reason that we were estranged from God is because of his holiness and because of our sin. Our sin separated us from a holy God. Because of our sin, we have violated God's law. And he has no fellowship with those who are in sin. We were separated. We were estranged from him. And there was no peace until the great day of peace at Calvary. When Jesus took on himself the wrath of the Father. The wrath that you and I deserve. Christ won for us the rewards that were part of that covenant made with his people. At that point, God offered a peace treaty to everyone who places their trust and their faith in Christ Jesus. For context, we see in Isaiah 9, which is a message that you see a lot during the, the Advent season. The prophet Isaiah foretells of the coming Messiah. In verse 6 of chapter 9, he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His title as the Prince of Peace is not simply because he had the ability to mediate disputes between human beings, which he did. You read the Gospels. He, he was really, really good at that. Or to display his, his love and his example of how to love. That's not why he's called the Prince of Peace. He's not called the Prince of Peace because he had the ability to reconcile estranged people. As we read earlier, the woman who was caught in sin that came before the Lord and washed her feet, he, he, he reconciled. But more importantly, he was the champion of peace or the prince of peace between God and man. He is our peace because he made atonement by shedding of his blood. 
and remove the distance or the great void that once separated us from God. This is the gospel. This is the good news in which we walk. Look at verse 16. He says, in verse 15, he says, um, creating himself one man in place of two, so making peace, verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the the hostility. One of the commentators I was reading this week talked about a a conversation that he had had with a Jewish man many years before whose great fear of true Christianity was only through the lens of anti-Semitism. He looked back to the terrible Holocaust of World War II and the other periods in church history when those who were supposed to be a part of the Christian church had used violence and bloodshed to express their hatred to their Jewish brethren. Far from being apostles of peace, Many times in church history, between Jews and Christians, we have been apostles of discord, hatred, and persecution. This is the division that the work of Christ crushed. It crushed it. Christ, by wanting us to be reconciled to God, also desires for us to be reconciled to his people. Christ, while wanting us to be reconciled to God, also desires for us to be reconciled to people. I've heard multiple times over the course of my life people that have been deeply hurt by the church, have been deeply hurt in relationships say, I love God, but I don't love people. This is not evidence of the work of Christ. This is isolation and deception of the enemy. Because the work of Christ was to create peace in both directions, both vertically and horizontally. Christ, while wanting us to be reconciled to God, also desires for us to be reconciled to each other. This means of reconciling man to God and man to man, it's the same. Do you understand that? It's the same. That reconciliation took place at a vertical level between us and God. But because of that, because of our regeneration, because we are fully justified, it is also our calling to reconcile horizontally. Paul expounds on this in his letter to the church at Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 16, he says this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, a verse we all know very well, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. But there's a sentence after that, church. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of what? Reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. 
<coughs> I love this. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be recon- reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Remember last week we discussed the beautiful identity we are granted in our regeneration. In our new identity, we are his workmanship, right? In our new identity, we are his masterpiece. In in our new identity, we are his work of art. This is the fruit of his workmanship. I want you to layer this on top of this idea of reconciliation, okay? It's really important. This is, this is the intent, the flow of the letter Paul's writing. In our regeneration, in our being made new, or as Jesus told in John chapter 3, in our being born again, that we walk in a way of righteousness. But we do that as reconcilers. We do that understanding that our purpose is to reconcile people to God and to live lives of reconciliation. Reconcilers. Reconcile people to Christ. This is a moment where he's entrusting us with this role. This is one of the roles of the church. This is not the, one of the roles of the preacher. Hear me say that. Look at me. Like, this is not just the role of the preacher. This is the role of the church. The ministry of reconciliation, you are equipped. Do you know that? I know some days you don't feel it. I understand that. So do I. But you are equipped for this good work. Because why? You are his workmanship. In our regeneration, he has recreated us in this image. Remember, in our, in our creation, we're creating the image of God. In our recreation, we're creating what? The glory of God. But we struggle with this idea of reconciliation. We struggle so much with this. We have people in our lives that we have alienated ourselves from. Because they hurt us. And I understand the depth of hurt. And sometimes I don't fully understand the depth of your hurt. But I know one that does. And that's our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've alienated ourselves because they've done something that's hurt us. Or even more extreme than that, they've done something that is evil to us. And so we've alienated ourselves from them because that's what our culture and our world says that we do. But remember, we are not of this world. We are created for something more. We are set apart and we are reconcilers. Do we respond to these things as the rest of the world responds? When someone hurts you, 
when someone says something awful to you online, when someone says something to you, or they do something to your family, or, or, or the worst case scenario is they do something to hurt one of, one of your kids or your grandkids or something like that, right? Like, do we respond as the rest of the world responds? No, we are called to be reconcilers. What are areas or relationships in your life today that need restoration? What are areas or relationships in your life today that need to be reconciled? What's holding you back? Is it pride? Is it past hurt? We are his ambassadors for this reconciliation. We are ambassadors for peace. But this way of living is not easy. And please hear me say that. This is not easy. It's only made possible through the work of Christ and his spirit. This, but this way of living will proclaim a trust outside of human relationship. It'll proclaim a trust in the work of Christ. It'll proclaim a trust in the body of Christ, his church. Through the cross of hostility was put to death so that through the church we would also engage in this work. Remember, this points back to the end of chapter 1 in the body of Christ. If you turn back over there real quick, read those last couple of verses. Verse 22, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. This is our work, church, to put on display the peace and the reconciliation of Christ at Calvary. I want you to take a moment, and this will be uncomfortable for you, I know. I want you to take a moment, and I want you to reflect on this truth. Do you put, I want you to answer, a I want you to say a couple of these questions in your mind and take a brief minute to respond and think about. Do you put this peace on display? Do you display the same forgiveness that God has granted to you in Christ? Take a moment and think about those two things. Do you put on this peace, do you put this peace on display? And do you display the same forgiveness that God has granted to you in Christ? Paul continues in verses 17 and 18. He says, And he came and he preached peace to, to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Notice that the access is given to the Jew and the Gentile and to the family, right? So it's two groups, two bloodlines, and it's granted access is granted to both 
into one, which is the family of God. So that both Jewish and Gentile Christians can cry, Abba, Father, to the same person by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul gives such a beautiful picture here of the Trinity in the understanding of this. They, or we, are both adopted into the same family, the family of God. We saw that Paul had mentioned that Christ had broken down the wall of partition and has become our peace for Gentiles and Jews alike. His work accomplished the redemption of both. The work of both was to accomplish the unity of one. Do you see that? See how beautiful that is? Like two people who for generations and generations were so far from each other, the work of Christ, the work of the coming Messiah, the work on the cross was to grant peace, but not just peace, but access to the same family. How beautiful is that? It really gives that beautiful illustration of Ephesians 1 when he talks about the adoption, right? That we are adopted into this family. Verse 19. So that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Paul is obviously addressing Gentiles by saying that you are no longer strangers. If you are in Christ, however, it is not only that you are no longer a stranger to the Old Testament ritual, but you are no longer a stranger to God himself. He has made himself known to you. That strangeness or the, the foreigners of God is no longer a part of our life today. This beautiful truth should radically change the way that you live because you are a part of the promise. We are now fellow citizens, fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God. There is a phrase here that's vitally important. As I've said from the beginning in the book of Ephesians, and we've already begun to build out on it, we talk a lot about the doctrine of the church. Or if I'm going to go three weeks in a row and give you a really good theological term, our ecclesiology, right? That's what Paul is teaching in depth through the book of Ephesians, our ecclesiology or the doctrine of the church. The church is called by many different names in Scripture. For example, in chapter 1, it was called what? The body of Christ. But here the metaphor that Paul uses is that of a building. He says that we are now part of what? The household of God. We are part of the household in a sense that we have been adopted into God's family, which is another image of Scripture uses to describe the church, the family of God. But here the emphasis is not so much on the family initially as it is on the house. And this is important as he ties the foundation in verse 20. Look at verse 20. He says, the household of God, and then comma, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Paul continues to develop this idea of the church as the house of God here. One of the hymns that we will sing at some point, I know, is that 
the church one foundation is that Jesus is her Lord. Is that playing in your head now? The church one foundation is Jesus, her Lord. But the central image of the New Testament regarding the foundation is more than that of just Christ. The New Testament does say that no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. But the picture Paul gives here is a foundation of the church is of the apostles and the prophets. Stay with me here because this is really important in our understanding of the church or our ecclesiology, right? In the Old Testament, the prophets were spokesmen of God. In the New Testament, apostles served as agents of revelation by which God spoke to his people. The apostles and the prophets were the means in which God delivered the word of God. Another way of understanding this foundation is this. The church is founded and established on what? The word of God. The truth is, is the reason we see attacks today against the integrity, the authority, the sufficiency, and the trustworthiness of the sacred word of God. The reason we see that so rapidly happening and also, we see it in translations happening today. We see, we see in translations where pronouns are omitted. We see it in translations today where, where full paragraphs are omitted because it doesn't fit someone's agenda. The reason that we see that is that these attacks are not on the Word of God. They're an attack on the church of Jesus Christ. Their aim is from the enemy to place small fractures in the foundation of the church. To have a church without apostolic authority, without the word of God as its foundation, is to build a church on sand rather than the rock on which Christ said he would build his church. Or in other words... To have a church without the word of God being the central presence is not to have a church at all. Paul uses the image of the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. So where does Christ fit in this illustration? Look at verse 20 again. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, comma, Christ Jesus himself being the what? The cornerstone. The cornerstone. I'm not a builder, and so I don't really have the, the great understanding and illustration of, of what the cornerstone is. There's people in this room that do. They have a good understanding. Joe could probably stand up and give us a really good... In fact, Joe, did you, did you remember to do that? Give us, oh, man. So. But the cornerstone is a hinge, as it were on which the foundation itself hangs together, right? Take out the cornerstone, everything else falls apart. This is why there are places all over our country and our world today that still have the word name on their sign, but have long abandoned the foundation of the apostle and prophets and Christ as the cornerstone. And because of that, they are no longer a church. 
but only a place in which people meet. Verse 21. Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, comma, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Paul mixes this up a little bit here, right? Because he's already used it as a house. He's he's already used a few different illustrations to describe the church. He mixes it up a little bit here. And if you, it's easy to overlook. He's talking here about, remember the illustration of the temple. Paul is talking here about the illustration of the new temple. The old temple would soon pass away and the new temple would be established. But, it's, but this temple is not made with human hands. It's the temple that is built in Christ, by Christ, and for Christ. He is the cornerstone of the temple. And hear me on this. His church is the new temple. It's really important that we grab hold of this, this teaching of the church. Notice that Paul is referring not only to the whole congregation of Jews and Gentiles added together, but to every individual believer. He is showing that the individual believer is a person in whom God, the Holy Spirit, dwells. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, Paul builds out this by saying that our bodies are what? Temples of God. Just as God dwelt By his spirit in the temple in the Old Testament, today, through the work of Christ, he dwells with us. Let's land this plane, not land the ship, as I've been heard that I've been saying. I don't think you can land a ship, so let's land this plane. Thank you to my wife. She's my greatest, she's my greatest uh, uh, encouraging critic on, on my sermons, so... Apparently, I've been saying land the ship, and I don't think that that's possible. Um, We're going to land the plane on verse 22. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul here, once again, is using a metaphor, metaphor of a building. But he's not saying that the church is made of brick and mortar, and this is important. Rather, we are building stones. Each of us today, if we are followers of Christ, if the Spirit dwells in us, are a part of this place in which Paul describes. This is beautiful because Christ is still building his church. In fact, I say this all the time, you know, in in Romans 9 and 10, when he talks about the remnant of Israel, it's something that is very, very much misunderstood. But the remnant of Israel are those who will proclaim his name in the future that have not yet done so. But those who will proclaim his name that have not yet done so, guess what? They are part of the stones here of this building. And that is why our calling as the church is to go and make his name known Because you never know when you might rub shoulders with someone who is a part of that remnant, who is a part of God's people. The new new temple will not be finished until the consummation of the kingdom, but a new stone will be added perhaps today. And that new stone is the salvation of a saint. 
That salvation is for someone within your life that you are praying for, and God one day faithfully, will, will, they will surrender their life to him, and they are a stone added to this temple. And this, this church, this building, this temple that Paul speaks of today is being added to at all times. And the temple will not be complete until the full consummation of his kingdom. Christ is still building his church. Not by adding cement, but by adding people. Who are pieces that come together in him. As he builds it, he's using you. Do you realize that? You. There are people within your life today that you have a circle of influence on for one reason and one reason only that I could not go and talk to, but you do because of the work that you've done in your job, because of the work you've done in friendships, through the work you've done in schooling or homeschooling. There are people in your life that do not know the beauty of this Jesus I proclaim that God has granted you an influence over for one reason, to build his church. Who are those people? When you close your eyes, who are those people that come to your mind that God has brought into your life? For some of them, it's a really weird story why that person's in your life, but they are in your life for one reason and one reason only is so that you may live a life to display the excellencies of Christ. Church, you are his masterpiece. You are a minister of reconciliation. Go live as one who has been forgiven. Go live today as one who has been set free. Go live as one today who has been regenerated. Love as one who has been loved. Walk daily in the work of Christ. Proclaim, forgive, reconcile put it on repeat in your life there is no hurt that Christ can't forgive and if you do so we will truly begin to understand what it means to live in the true freedom that is found in Christ and Christ alone let me pray for us